Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for the fact that you are good to us. Lord, we thank you uh, as we're about to see that um, your word is trustworthy. Lord, that we can uh, rely on it even when the world around us seems to be falling apart. Your uh, word is an anchor to, for our souls. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have complete confidence and trust in your word. Um, Lord, even when life seems uncertain, uh, when, when, our, even when our lives seem to be turned upside down, I pray that our foundation would be your word. Lord, give us hearts to trust. Give us hearts to uh, understand. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, if you weren't here last week, we're doing a, a series on the Word of God, specifically on the characteristics, the four characteristics of Scripture. Um, and so it's uh, not technically a full doctrine of the Word of God, but, uh, but it's part of the doctrine of the Word of God. By the way, there are handouts on the back table. Um, if you'd like to get those, um, you can grab a copy. Um, we saw, well, before, before I get into review, I just wanted to kind of make a point about the importance of uh, the topic that we're looking at. So last week we looked at the authority of Scripture. This week we're continuing in the authority of Scripture. Actually, let me go back and quickly review last week. Um, if you weren't here, I can get you notes if you'd like to have those. But pretty much what we looked at last week is what does God's Word claim about itself? And we saw that consistently throughout the Bible, we see that God's Word claims that it is, in fact, God's Word. Um, and so we came to, we looked at the Old Testament, and we looked at God spoke through the prophets. God asked or told the prophets to write down uh, the prophecies that He was giving them. We looked at the New Testament. We saw that Jesus, in fact, looked at the Old Testament as God's Word. The, uh, the, all of the disciples, the apostles, looked at the Old Testament as God's Word. And then we saw that even in the New Testament, that the, the, the writers of the New Testament identified their own writing as being authoritative, as being God's words. Um, so we came to basically say with Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, uh, or God breathed. All Scripture is the Word of God. We're going to pick up there this week, uh, but before I get started, I did want to just say that this is foundational. If we get the authority of God's Word wrong, everything else will fall apart. Uh, and, and one of the reasons there's four characteristics we're looking at, um, it's a five-week series. We're spending two weeks. It, this may even bleed over into the third week on the authority. And I think that's appropriate because the authority of God's Word is the foundation of everything. The other three characteristics of God's Word really ride or fall on God's, the authority of God's Word. So we will be looking at that today. Not only is it, a, is it important for uh, the other four characteristics, but if you get the authority of God's Word wrong, if you get it wrong here, then it has major implications for your entire belief system. Um, you're, you will find, and you see this in uh, denominations who abandon the authority of God's Word, you see a pretty rapid descent 
where then everything starts to become questioned. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, but just know this is foundational, and that's why we're spending so much time on it. When I was in college, uh, I met a graduate student named Brad. And Brad was an interesting guy. Um, he was a former pastor, seminary student, uh, graduated with an MDiv, uh, knew Greek, uh, could read Greek, I mean, which is saying something, not, not every uh, um, person with an MDiv can, can read Greek. Um, very sharp guy. He was working on his PhD at the university I went to. Uh, so I, I come to find out about Brad. We met, and he was not extremely hostile, but somewhat hostile to Christianity. And I was surprised. You know, here's a former pastor who now is trying to convince me that, that you can't believe the Bible. So I was curious, uh, you know, how do you get there? You know, so, how, so Brad, how do you get from here to here? How does that happen? Um, we were talking one day, and he was trying to convince me that the Bible was filled with contradictions. So I was like, okay. Now, keep in mind, uh, I'm a pretty new believer at this point. Um, I started college as a new believer, which I think was very helpful. Um, I was eager to see how does what I'm learning in my class and how does what I'm hearing from all these professors and all these other people, how does it line up with the Bible? And when uh, you have professors who are criticizing the Bible and, and talking about how it, it can't be true. You're digging in. I was like, okay, God, this is your word, so help me, help me understand this. Well, it just so happens that I'd, when I was, before I talked to Brad, I just listened to or read a book by R.C. Sproul that he was explaining this, the contradiction. People say the Bible's filled with contradictions. So, um, so I had that already in my mind, uh, and sure enough, he went exactly where Sproul said most people go. Um, he started telling me how the gospel accounts of the resurrection were contradictory. And so I asked him to give me examples. He gave me some examples. Come to find out they weren't contradictions at all, thanks to R.C. Sproul. I could point this out to him. Um, and and, and basically, he conceded, yes, you're right, those aren't, after all, contradictions. Just because you have one account say this and another account say this, it doesn't mean that they necessarily contradict each other. Is it right? So, one, one gospel says Mary was there, the other gospel says Mary and Martha were there. Uh, that's not a contradiction. Uh, that just is two different people giving details that they think are important but it's not a contradiction. Uh, so after Brad and I talked, he agreed um, that all of his examples weren't actually contradictions. Uh, so it left me even more bewildered. How do you get there, Brad? How do you get from here to here um, when the example you're giving me is not really a contradiction? So, the authority of, God, of, of the authority of Scripture, part two. 
The definition we looked at was the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to believe is to disbelieve or disobey God. And uh, let me just make, there are two more points that I wanted to make from last week that I didn't get to. Number one, these are on your handout. We're going to be looking at all the words of Scripture or God's words. We're going to finish that up and then we'll keep moving. Number one, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's Word as we read them. Uh, and I give you a quote from Grudem. Again, I'm using Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, so pretty much my outline, you can go to his systematic theology and, and it's there. I mean, I've made some changes, but pretty much I'm using Wayne Grudem's material. Um, Grudem writes, It is one thing to affirm that the Bible claims to be the Word of God, or the words of God, It is another thing to be convinced that those claims are true. Our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts and gives us an inner assurance that these words, that these, that the words of our Creator, these are the words of our Creator speaking to us. So, again, what Grudem is saying is that uh, it's one thing to say that these are God's words, but to actually believe that, to actually uh, affirm that truth takes the work of the Holy Spirit. As we read, as we interact with these words, um, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to, so, that, so that we can affirm that as being true. Um, notice, and I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I gave you these, these verses, I'm going to go through these pretty quickly if you want to turn there, I've given them to you in your outline. Uh, you notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, chapters, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Key part, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, we, there are spiritual truths that God has given us. Uh, and, and Paul is saying here that we impart these words not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. And the natural person, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him. Now, what does that imply about uh, people apart from the work of God? Well, it implies that um, we're not coming to the Bible in an objective way. When, when we come to the Bible, um, there's something uh, that we need to understand. This is truth. This is God's Word, but to affirm that, there's something in us, and we're going to look at that in just a minute, that keeps us from affirming that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, <clears throat> you'll recall what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And notice what it's saying. Not only do people hear Jesus, he says, My sheep hear my voice, But then what do they do? 
they follow. They hear and they follow because they know that that is the voice of their shepherd, their savior. They hear the word of God and they respond to the word of God. Now, now we're going to kind of get into what is the problem with human beings. Paul writes in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God and therefore hostile to God's word. It does not submit to God's law. It can't. So the mindset on the flesh comes to God's word and it cannot submit to it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, as we read these words, opening our eyes, if you will, helping us to affirm that these are in fact God's words. Uh, Jesus says this in John three nineteen, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Again, we see this imagery that Jesus uses of light and darkness, and, and that, I think, is spiritual. So there is, Jesus comes in, the light has come, and what happened? People rejected him, right? When Jesus came to the earth, um, he was pretty much universally rejected, apart from a few, relatively few people. Um, and he says that the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. And why was that? Well, it's because their works were evil. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, <clears throat> what is wrong with the human race? We have been impacted by the fall. We are all sinners. We choose to sin, but we are sinners from birth. Sin not only is what we do, but it affects the way we think. You follow me? So when we look around at creation, sin distorts our vision. We don't see as God sees, apart, again, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. When we come to God's Word, we don't see it for what it is. In fact, we reject it. Uh, and we may not reject it ultimately, in, intentionally. Sorry, I need to turn my phone off. Um, but we reject it because of sin in our lives. And I'm not saying that everybody intentionally does this because we saw in Jeremiah 17, 9 that the heart is deceitful above all else. It is possible, very likely, that most people are self-deceived. They don't even know they're deceived. And so... If the heart is truly deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? The idea is that you can't even understand the inner workings of your own heart. And so, uh, in a world where there is no fall, there is no sin, the Bible would commend itself convincingly to everyone. Does that make sense? <clears throat> but we don't live in that world. Because of sin, our perception and our analysis of our creator, creation, and his word is distorted. It's faulty. We need the Holy Spirit to overcome that effect of sin. 
So when we come to God's Word, we, we are convinced when we read God's Word and the Holy Spirit does a work as we are reading the Word of God to convince us that this is actually the Word of God. As we read, and I'm, I'm quoting here from Grudem, as we read Scripture, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God in such a way that we hear our Creator's voice speaking to us in the words of Scripture. We realize that this book is unlike any other book. It is living, active, and sharper than any, than any two-edged sword. So, number two, that leads to number two. Other evidence is useful, but not finally convincing. <clears throat> It's helpful for us to learn that the Bible is historically accurate. It's helpful for us to look at the Bible and see that it is consistent internally. Um, And it's helpful also to see that there are hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled from the Bible. All those things are great. So if someone's struggling to believe the Bible, it's sometimes helpful to give them other books to help them to see that, yes, in fact, it is historically accurate. Uh, in fact, uh, to my knowledge, there have been claims that the Bible is not historically accurate based on archaeology. But there are also, uh, we've come to find out, it's the one case that I'm thinking of is back in the 80s, a famous archaeologist said that, um, that the, based on their studies of Jericho, that the, that the Old Testament... Um, uh, account of the fall of Jericho didn't happen. Well, come to find out, 15 years later, another archaeologist was there and found evidence that it actually did happen and that this person was looking in the wrong part of the city. This person was looking on, on a far end of the city and that's why they didn't find the evidence. <clears throat> so there are claims that, that, that it's not historically accurate, but time usually proves those claims to be false, at least uh, everyone that I'm aware of has been proven false, or will be. Um, so it is historically accurate. Uh, <clears throat> textual evidence shows that the Bible is internally consistent. Uh, we see all that. Uh, we, we have evidence of that. There is, uh, there is more textual evidence for the Bible than any other book of, of antiquity. Uh, we trust Homer's writings. We trust the Iliad. And the textual evidence for that is very minimal compared to what we have for the Bible. And all of that's great, but it's not fully convincing. Um, You can argue those points to an unbeliever, and unless the Spirit of God is working, they're not going to believe it because these are things that are spiritually discerned. Let me read you a paragraph from the Westminster Confession of Faith that talks about this point. Uh, Chapter 1, paragraph 5, it says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the work, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies. And pretty much what, he say, what they're saying is that we can look at all of the external uh, evidence that the Bible is God's Word, and those are, those are great, and the entire perfection thereof. 
are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Again, all of those things are helpful, but they're not fully convincing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, all the words of Scripture are God's words. Therefore, to disobey, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Um, that's the last part of the definition. Um, to deny, uh, or not to deny, but to disbelieve what we have in the Word of God, to disobey any part of this, if this is God's Word, is to disobey directly God himself. And we talked about last week the fact that if a king sends a messenger on his behalf, <clears throat> excuse me, and he gives the message of the king and the people don't respond to it, they're ultimately not responding to the king, not the messenger himself, right? And that's essentially what we're saying. This is the word of God. And so therefore, uh, if we disbelieve this or we disobey this, we are in fact disobeying or disbelieving God. Um, and that's not something we need to take lightly. We don't have the luxury of saying, yes, this is the Word of God, but I don't really like what it says here. Um, so, therefore, I'm not going to obey that. Uh, we don't get to pick and choose. It is the Word of God. Therefore, we must take it as the full counsel of the Word of God. <clears throat> now, let's turn our attention to the truthfulness of God's Word. First, I want to look at uh, if this is God's word, and, and it is serious to disbelieve or disobey it, well, let's, let's look at what this says about God himself. What do we know about God? Well, first, we know that God cannot lie or speak falsely. Now, we're looking at God's character. What does the Bible tell us about God's character? Well, Titus 1-2 speaks of God, and it says that God who never lies. So we know that God never lies based on Titus 1-2. And so it's part of God's character not to lie. God is not going to mislead anyone. God's not going to, um, he's not going to, he's not going to tell you something that is not true. God will always tell the truth because he does not lie. It is not his character. Um, you've probably heard People say, uh, can God do anything? Well, the answer to that is no. God cannot lie. God cannot do anything that is outside or goes against his character. And so we need to look at the character of God, and we see that God never lies. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. Not only God, does God not lie, it's impossible for him to lie. Now, Give me some reasons that people tend to lie. I know I'm, I'm popping a question on you. I want you to think about it. But why, why do people tend to lie? Yes. Okay, so we want to cover something up. Yeah, and that could be a lot of different reasons. Huh? 
Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being truthful there, Ken. Uh, what, what are, what's another reason people may lie? Yes, sir. Okay. So, uh, not to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes people lie to stay out of trouble. That, my kids don't ever do that, do they? Yeah. What, why else might somebody lie? Make yourself look better. Yeah, good. Bill? To manipulate others. Okay. Yeah. Can someone lie unintentionally? How might that happen? You might say something one day and then you find out, uh, you know, you go to the mechanic and they ask what year your car is. You say, it's 2005. Then you actually look at the little thing inside your door and realize, oh, it's a 2004. So you lied, but it was unintentional. You didn't have information. There was some information that you're missing. Uh, and I know it's a small example, but people lie like that all the time. Uh, or they think something's true, come to find out it's not true. Um, this archaeologist lied, uh, even though I don't think they intentionally lied. I think they were looking at their evidence, uh, but they lied. There was other evidence they just didn't know about, or maybe, I, hopefully they didn't know about it. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want you to think about that uh, because we, we see in Numbers 23:19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. So here we see God's character uh, contrasted with human. So God's word contrasted with human words. I mean, I'm, I'm basing this in God's character. So God is not a man that he should lie. Now, um, I was going to ask if there's anyone in here who's never lied, but I won't even ask. Uh, because as Dan said the other day, if you say that you've never lied, you're lying. Um, we all have lied. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie. Um, God doesn't have to protect himself. God doesn't have to cover anything up. God doesn't, um, I'm forgetting everything everybody said, but, but basically God is not a man that he should lie. God is truthful because his character is truthfulness. And God doesn't have to repent like men do. Men repent because they've said something and they get more information and then they realize what they said was actually wrong and they have to repent. Uh, God doesn't do that because God has all the information. He's, he's omniscient. There's not anything he doesn't know. So he never misspeaks and he never misleads. That is who he is in his character. Um, God can't do anything, again, that is inconsistent with his character. Therefore, number two on your outline, therefore all the words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. Since the Bible is God's words, and God's character is such that he can't lie, it's impossible for him to lie, therefore... All of the words of Scripture are true. There's no um, misleading. There's no uh, ambiguity. Uh, 
well, I shouldn't say there's no ambiguity. God, there's no intentional misleading in the Word of God. Yeah, I can say there's no ambiguity. Um, open your Bibles. I did want to look at this at Psalm 12. We're going to read the first six verses. Verse 1 says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will, now arise, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, on the ground purified seven times. Again, you see this contrast. You're reading the first four verses, and, and you, you're thinking the psalmist is writing about society today. Um, that there, where, where, where is the faithful man? Everyone utter lies, utters lies to his neighbors. They flatter each other. They speak from a double heart. Then it gets to God's words. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. Now, why do you, uh, why do you put silver in a furnace? What's the purpose? To purify it, Right? So there's impurities in silver, and you put it in a, in a furnace, and I'm told that the impurities rise to the top, and then you, you scoop that off, I guess, and then you have a more pure. But notice the, words, the, the Lord's words are refined seven times by fire. So what, what, what's significant about the word seven in the Bible? Yeah, it's, a, it's the number of perfection. God's words are pure to perfection. In contrast with the words of people who lie, flatter, deceive, God's words are sure. When we have a, a society where it does seem like everyone is lying, and everyone's looking out for themselves, and so it's hard to know who do you believe uh, you can trust God's Word. It's pure. It's like silver that has been purified by the fire seven times. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Uh, God's word, uh, Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades. And again, those are, if you look in context, those are talking about people. Uh, people fade, we wither, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word is pure. God's word is true. It's trustworthy, and it will stand forever. Um, there's not one thing, there's not one thing that can happen that will prove this word wrong. 
Now, there might be things that make us look at our interpretation of it, and we, we've seen that uh, in history where we've misinterpreted God's Word, but are we, I'm sorry, we didn't misinterpret it, actually. It was, we misread it. Uh, we said it that it said something that it actually never said. Uh, but there's nothing that will ever come to light that'll prove this false. So we can have confidence. <clears throat> I remember uh, going back to college. I have a lot of college stories. Uh, freshman year, I had just become a believer. I've already said that. And again, I'm wrestling. I have professors who were just tearing the Bible down left and right. If your kids are going to college, pray for them daily. Uh, because most professors' goal, it seems... And, and, and I'm pretty old. This is not recent. Um, most professors' uh, goal in class is to, uh, it seems like, to belittle Christianity. Um, I had this professor. He was a, an astronomy professor. And he made it very clear. I'm, I'm a freshman. I'm in this class of like 300 people. And this guy is just blasting the Bible from the day one. Uh, how it's you can't believe anything it says. He particularly liked to to talk about the creation story and how absurd it was and how you can't believe anything the Bible says. Well, I remember uh, that same year, uh, a campus ministry invited a guy named Michael Behe, Dr. Michael Behe, who is a biochemist, I believe. He had written a book called Darwin's Black Box, and he pretty much showed that uh, that there are, biologically speaking, a human body has things that uh, evolution can never account for. And so he was invited to speak by this Christian organization on campus, and I showed up for it because I was really interested. Um, and, and I walk in, and who's sitting on the front row but my astronomy professor? And I thought, boy, this is going to be good. <laughs> Uh, he's sitting up there on the front row, you know, like this. Uh, Dr. Behe went into his whole, his whole uh, uh, lecture on why uh, there is actually very good evidence to believe in a creator. And, and I'm waiting the whole time for this professor to challenge him. At the end, Dr. Behe says, are there any questions? I'm like, okay. Now, this is about to get good, um, and never says a word, never questions anything that he said. Um, it uh, made me realize that just because there's someone who seems very smart, they're educated, uh, as one person said, they're educated beyond their mental capacity, um, and, and they say things like, you can't believe the Bible, that, number one, you have to remember what's the problem? The heart. Number two, there are good answers for everything. Um, this is trustworthy. And so you can trust God's word. Uh, it will prove true. Um, so last point, because I'm running out of time. God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. Um, and this hopefully will be very helpful. Open your Bibles to John 17. 
I think Grudem is very insightful here, at least he was for me. John 17 is uh, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples and his followers. And he says in verse 17, Sanctify them, praying to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. We're going to camp out there because I think it's really important. Uh, Grudem points out um, that Jesus doesn't say your word is true as you would expect him to say. So uh, Jesus doesn't use the adjective. He uses the noun. Your word is truth. Uh, so what's, what's important here? What's, what's the big deal? So what? Jesus didn't use an adjective. He used a noun. There's a big difference. Uh, if Jesus said your word is true, if something's true... That means that it is consistent with a higher authority, another authority. So if, if your word is true, that means that what God's word is true because it lines up with, it's consistent with another authority, higher authority than God's word. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says your word is truth, meaning... God's Word is the standard. So, all other truth must line up with this to be true. Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. And um, in Uganda, they have these shops uh, that you can go and buy sugar, rice, uh, flour, and you go and you'll say, um, can I get, and this is not true just in Uganda, it's true a lot of places, can I get, except for America, uh, can I get a kilo of sugar? Um, of course, if you're in America, you wouldn't say kilo. Uh, and then that, what they do is they'll have, they have a big bag of sugar, and they'll scoop out sugar, and they put it in a smaller bag. And what's that smaller bag sitting on? A scale, Right. And there's a weight on this other side, and they change that weight depending on how much you're going to buy. Um, Ugandan shops are notorious for having bad weights. Uh, I'm not saying that's intentional, um, but they're notorious for having bad weights. Uh, and so, how do you know you're really getting a kilo? Uh, they put a weight up there that has a mark on it, kilo, and it, it might be three-fourths of a kilo. It's never going to be more than a kilo. Uh, it's always going to be less than a kilo. But how do you know? Well, you don't know unless you have a weight that is actually a kilo. Then you could put that on the scale and you could see whether this weight is true. You follow me? This is that weight. This is that standard by which all other truth claims must be measured. Um, and I, I can't emphasize this more. Uh, this is so important because uh, it is being challenged. And, and basically throughout history, uh, and a brief history on God's, the authority of God's word and I'm going to simplify this. I know, uh, 
just know I'm simplifying this for a quick illustration or a quick point. Early in, soon after, uh, first several hundred years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, this was the standard. This, is, this was the standard by which all other truths were, were measured. Um, somewhere around six, seven hundred, um, you started to see the idea of, well, this is not only the, not only the Bible is authoritative, but also the church tradition is authoritative. And then that sort of grew into uh, the Pope is authoritative. Uh, and so it's how do we measure this? So what happened was God's word was on top, if you could look at it this way. All other truth was below it. There's a line here. And, it's, and it's ju- this is the judge of all other things, all other truth claims. So what happened was we started to see church tradition come up here, uh, and then it went like this. So now church tradition, now uh, Pope, the Pope, when he's speaking ex cathedra, is now authoritative, and it's more recent than this. Therefore, it takes priority over the Word of God. And then after that, we, we hit the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment obviously was, you know, well, the Pope's inconsistent and church the church tradition can be inconsistent. And so now what happened was, what was the Enlightenment famous for? Rationalism. Now, rationalism or reason with a capital R, because I'm not suggesting this isn't reasonable, um, rationalism now became judge over the Bible. Uh, that, that lasted throughout modernity into where we are today, which there's still some residual effects of modernity, um, uh, especially if you're a boomer. Um, but really what's taken place now is you have postmodernism, and now, uh, and I'm simplifying postmodernism, but now you could say your experience is over the Word of God, your experience judges. So you're here, you'll, you will hear things like you need to be true to yourself. Um, it's true to what? Yourself. Now yourself is the ultimate standard, your experience. Um, and so I say all that to say that the, the authority of God's word is attacked. Um, and I'm going to go back in a minute to the beginning. But we need to remember that this is the standard by which all other truth claims are to be judged. If something doesn't make sense to me, and there's some hard things in here, there's some hard things to understand, uh, some things that, that I, for the Trinity, I can't figure that out. What do I do? It doesn't logically make sense to me. Well, I have to assume that the problem is not this, the problem is with me. Um, or, my experience is this. Well, we have to say it, there could be a problem with our experience, at least our perception of it. Um, and so, the, God's Word is the highest standard. It is the authority. It is the judge of all other truth claims. For them to be true, they have to line up with the Word of God. They have to be consistent with the Word of God. Um, and again, I'll just remind you of the fact that um, our perception can be wrong because of the fall. Our, 
our perception has been affected by our sin. Uh, the sinner seeks to be autonomous. He will, therefore, set himself up as judge over that which presents itself as revelation. Let me read that again. The sinner seeks to be autonomous. He will, therefore, seek to set himself up as judge over that which presents itself to him as revelation. Um, that was another theologian. Not surprisingly, uh, in last year, uh, in 2020, Ligonier Ministries did a, they call it a state of theology poll. They take with, I think they, they partner with Lifeway. Uh, but they pretty much do a poll. They ask questions and have people respond. And their goal is to kind of see what are the trends outside the church and inside. So they're polling everyone, not just Christians, not just evangelicals. And they try to figure out where, what's everybody thinking. And so they ask a lot of different questions. Uh, but you won't be surprised to see that in 2020, nearly a third of evangelicals agreed to this statement. So these are evangelicals. And they're agreeing to the statement, uh, about a third, uh, that Jesus was a, a great teacher, but he was not God. Um, it gets worse when you move to the general population. Uh, but they found in this poll that, um, that uh, the majority of U.S. adults agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not in a, about an objective truth. So again, we live in an age where our experience um, is the authority. But as Christians, we need to recognize that our experiences could be wrong. Um, this is the judge, the word of God. It is true. Uh, it is our authority. Um, when you abandon the truthfulness of scriptures, you end up uh, abandoning most everything else of importance. Um, and I need to stop here. Um, I can tell when Rod shuts his Bible that it's time to... <laughs> Sorry, Rod, I wasn't watching the clock. <laughs> um, so let me, let me pray. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, and we pray that you would give us... Um, Give us the ability to see your word for what it truly is. Uh, Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, we thank you that it's a rock, that it is our a sure foundation that will never fail. It will never pass away. It will never be proven wrong. Lord, your word is true because you are true. Lord, and we thank you for that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.